August 21st, 2011, lecture discussion number 45 on the book of Romans. And okay, before we re-enter the world of microscopic realm, of the microscopic realm of quantum theory with its single photon Mach Zender interferometers and Heisenberg's microscopes and, and uh, Bohr's uh, basic principle of complementarity and the like. And I recognize that those are phrases and words and terms that you're not familiar with, so what am I doing to you? I'm repeating them all the time. Eventually, they will get where you handle them without any difficulty. Uh, and I want, but first, uh, I want to transition again into uh, Romans chapter 4, because uh, that's where we're headed, and I hope it is obvious to you why I'm doing it today. At least I hope it eventually becomes somewhat obvious, and that would be a good thing uh, for a change. Um, there are times when I know I am just adding um, to the fog, and at some point I have to clear it away and uh, smoke removal, if you will, and, and get clear skies. And uh, that's what I'm hoping to actually accomplish a little bit today. Don't get your hopes up just yet, though, because there's a lot of lumber and concrete. You know the order, right? Excavation, foundation, framing. That's how it goes. Actually, it doesn't happen that way. The, the, the framer always blames the foundation guy. If Louis were here, he gave me a foundation that was an inch high in the far right corner. Hi, Louis. And I didn't catch it. Normally, you catch it, you ground it down. But I didn't, so now we gotta cut every stud, don't we, Bill? We have, we have chased that inch and a half, it's an inch and a half all the way up to the roof. And so the framer always blames the foundation, the concrete guy, and the concrete guy always blames who? That's right, stand up. The excavator, Ryan. Excavator is blamed by the concrete guy, and then of course the excavator always blames the surveyor, and the surveyor blames, he's in a lot of trouble, surveyor. But anyway, we're still bringing foundation and framing and still excavating quite a bit. Anyway, Romans 3, 4, and 5, that's why I'm bringing up this subject today. They form a little subset, if you will, within the book of Romans, in my opinion. What I mean by that is that they should be one chapter. But they're called chapter 3, 4, and 5. And and you know, I hope you know, that the chapter-verse delineations are, are not inspired. They're additions. Uh, they're beneficial additions, to be sure, but they're additions nonetheless. They are not in the original text. And sometimes they cause the reader of Scripture uh, to assume that the chapter demarcation concludes either the previous subject or begins a new unrelated event or topic. And rarely is that the case. Instead, uh, we should ask this kind of, we should approach it this way, ask this kind of question. Using Romans 3, uh, 2, 3, 4, for example, or 3, 4, and 5, how is chapter 3 related to chapter 2? And then, how is chapter 3 connecting chapter 4 to chapter 2? Does that make sense? You should always ask that. You should assume that there is a logical progression, especially in the book of Romans. They are not separate pieces. They are a flowing Think wave-like instead of particle-like, right? But anyway, how do I get four back to two and so on? That would be the correct approach. So with that in mind, we should ask, how does the ubiquity of law, because that is how Romans chapter 3 concludes, the universalism of law, how does that lead naturally to a discussion of Abraham? Because chapter 4 is a discussion of Abraham. How is it that this universalism of law gets me to the sign of circumcision? And then what comes next in chapter 5? I hope you're reading ahead. I have the federal headship fall of Adam. So how do those all fit together? Why did Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul, make those one subject? And hopefully you can begin to do that, maybe just a little. What I mean, I think you can, I believe you can. Sounds like the little engine... I think you can connect the fall of Adam to circumcision. Can you do that? We covered it a little bit. Connect the fall of Adam to circumcision uh, uh, to Abraham to the purpose of the law, which is every mouth stopped, all are guilty without excuse. And being able to do that is is very helpful to you as you uh, study Scripture. 
Now, as an example, last Sunday I took some time and addressed uh, Werner Marty, his questions about the collision between God's omniscience, omniscience and man's free will, because they collide. And it's important to wrestle with it and to at least understand the uh, the issue. Let me reword it another way. Instead of God's omniscience and man's free will, let me do it this way. God being the creator of time and man being inside of time accountable for his sin. Because as you know, you're accountable. Mankind is accountable for sin. How do I reconcile with it for his sin? How do I reconcile unless he's saved? How do I reconcile that God outside of time and omniscient, watching all of time as it happens simultaneously? He sees all of time simultaneously. It's important to understand that. How do I reconcile that with our accountability for sin? Let me put it another way. Are Jesus Christ being the judge of all things and then casting the unbelieving rejecter of Christ's blood atonement, the garment, if you will, you're supposed to stand before Christ with a garment of what on you? A garment of blood, His blood. So either you have that garment and you are accepted by Him or you refuse that garment and you are rejected by him. And what does he do? Sheep and goats. He casts you into utter darkness, the lake of fire. And what was the purpose of the lake of fire in its originality? It was for the created, uh, the created of, of the angelic host, Satan and his fallen angels. See Matthew 25, 41. So God is outside of time, sees all of that. He sees himself. Well, when he enters in time, now that's a fascinating thing, huh? I have to think about that before I say it. But he sees all of time simultaneously and recognizes all things simultaneously. How do I have that? And then I also have accountability for sin in the angelic host and in the in, in mankind. And I went about last week rattling off a plethora of Scripture references that applied specifically to this issue. And I'll read them again. Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 15, Matthew 4, Matthew 26, 36 through 52, verse 36 through 52, Matthew 25, 14 through 29, Luke 19, Matthew 20, Isaiah 520, probably the most important one that you should memorize. It's the shortest. Hebrews 6, Ezekiel 28, the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Here it comes, right in the midst of man's free will and the omniscience of God, or the sovereign omniscience of God, his sovereignty. Then Judas, Pharaoh, why is Pharaoh in this discussion? Hardening of the heart of Pharaoh is here. Genesis 6, the Nephilim, they are here too. And those are the, the one, those are the primary ones, I believe, that begin to solve this collision between God's sovereign omniscience and man's freedom of will or the angelic host's freedom of will uh, at the same time. Both created beings that um, are held accountable for their free will decisions. If they don't have any because God's sovereign omniscience uh, overcomes them or renders them not free will, then what is the result of that? Ethically, if you will, the goodness of God is at stake. That is why Isaiah 520 is in there. So those are the ones that begin to solve it as best as the human mind can solve it. And now I want you to look at Romans 3, 4, and 5 as essentially the same process. And so let's get you started on that. <coughs> and I'll go back a little bit to that other to show you how you work your way through that as well. So let's take Romans 4, 16 through 19. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are, uh, are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope and hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. 
And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Now, this is a very complex, very difficult to understand passage. Now, I ask, I want you to ask the most obvious of the obvious questions. I'm just going to take a small piece of it. What exactly, in totality, medically, if you will, where's Lindsay? There's Lindsay. Medical professional. There's Christopher. There's a phone. It's never for me. Someday it'll be for me again, really, instead of a fake for me. There are people who have handed me phones trying to trick me into thinking that it was for me. And I am never fooled more than twice. Okay, back to the subject here. What exactly, in totality, medically, must be done in order to restore, to, in order to get back to functioning order, repaired, if you will, what must be fixed by God for a hundred-year-old man and a woman of approximately 90, Genesis 21 and 23, what is required to return? This is what he says to them in Genesis 18.10. Return to you according to the time of life, and behold. Boy, when you see those beholds, right? I didn't do it justice, did I? When you see a behold, what should you say? How should you handle every single behold in the Bible? What should you do? As you're reading it, I'll read it now correctly. What is required for God to say this? This is what he's going to do to them. And you know the story, right? They're going to have a child. They're 90 and 100. Medically, what's required? I think I know. Because I know what it would take to get me back to hitting a softball. But let's just consider it again as I go. What is required for him to say this? Quote, God saying this, Return to you according to the time of life, and behold! I didn't do it justice. Whenever you read behold in the Scripture, you come to a dead stop. Because that is unbelievable. Something unbelievable is going to happen. And it is unbelievable that a man of a hundred and a woman of approximately ninety, and let me finish, that Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. What does, has to happen for that to happen? What, what medically must happen to them? I want you to note that, behold, because something extraordinary always, always, always comes after behold. Every time you see a behold, you stop and you say, okay, something unbelievable is going to happen. And everybody should know that. It is for us to discover now what it is the behold is saying. And, and by the way, we would do well to just sit down and study all the beholds. How many do you think there are? Now, bring a lunch. Anyway, what did Abraham, the most obvious of the obvious, what did he look like before God returned him? Because God says, I'm going to return you to where you and Sarah, I'm going to return Sarah. I'm going to return to you what you, what you need to be in order to have a son. Both of you. Newsflash to the modern media, it's a two-part process. So what did Abraham look like before they were returned? What did Abraham and Sarah? And what did Abraham and Sarah look like after they were returned? What does it take? Yes, ma'am. Is it possible? Look at you. Get ahead of the teacher. Is it possible? She asked, is it on the inside only? Because she's thinking that it's an eternal, uh, internal plumbing a project. It requires some kind of licensed pipe fitter. Um, somebody that understands that. 
Hmm? No, it requires a supernatural control of a physical human being. Can you fix the inside so that it functions? What age do you think he returned the inside to? Okay. Hmm? 30? Well, that's an interesting idea. I see why you would say that. For the internet, she, uh, Kathy in the front row said 33, as opposed to Kathy in the back row to the left. Is it, don't we have another Kathy? I thought we had three Kathys. All Kathys stand up now. There's only two Kathys. I thought there was three, because somebody says, I like it now that there's more Kathys, because I get in less trouble. And that's all true. There's the phone again. But Felicia's comment, and by the way, we should all say hi to Sharon in, in uh, Texas, because she wants us to, she wants me to say your names so that she will know who you are, uh, so why? So she can begin hunting you down. That's right. Exactly right. So anyway, so Felicia said, is it on the inside only? And I think scripturally it is obvious that it is not. I'm going to return you to where you can bear a child. What does that take medically? Can it, is it possible to return somebody to that capability who is a hundred and somebody who is ninety, and I'll get into that here in a minute, but if we took it in today's context, is it possible to do that to somebody and not affect them on the exterior as well? You have to regenerate the cell process, don't you? Is all this, are all the cells connected? They are. I'm going to return to you According to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Genesis 18.10. Now, what did they look like afterwards? I think, like I said, it's obvious. Genesis 22, we have Abimelech. What's he do to Sarah when he sees her? He takes her. Takes her. By the way, I want you to connect that immediately to David and Bathsheba, right? Put those two together. Sarah is at the time about 65 years old. Now, even if the aging process is is at a different rate from today, say today uh, Sarah would be 75%, so she would be uh, 48 to 50. Let's give her that. And we only have approximations. Is a 48 to 50-year-old woman, now be really careful here, Steve, just be really careful. Okay, is Lori gone? Yes, she is. Is a 48 to 50-year-old woman... Somebody who is typically taken to be in a king's harem. No. After she is returned to where she can bear a child, she is so beautiful that she is grabbed, taken by Abimelech. When Abraham said, that's my sister, why didn't he say, that's my wife? Because he was convinced if he said, that's my wife, Abimelech will say, well, I can't take your wife. But I can take your widow, boys and girls. And he cut him down right there. That's exactly what would have happened. And Abraham was very much afraid of that. And why would Abraham be afraid of that when God had promised him that the son of promise for all of humanity, the savior of the world, would come through the Abrahamic line, through Sarah? But he still thought Abimelech could kill me, so I keep my mouth shut and said, that's his sister. I'm going to lie. He's saying, Abraham tried that routine before. And it kind of worked out. Not really. But here he goes again. He takes a beautiful young woman into a foreign land, and she's grabbed by the king of that land to be put into her, his harem because she was extraordinary. So what age did she look like? I have a guess. I will put my guess on the board so that no one can see it. This is what I think she was returned to. I think she was returned to 16. Okay? 65 years old, 16-year-old body. How's she feeling? Brain of a 65-year-old inside a 16-year-old body. She is queen of the world. How's she going to do at the high school senior prom? She's going to win everything. It's going to be the Sarah show all over the place. Abraham, the same way. The same way. 
Have to be. There's no other logical way to approach it. Okay? So, what did she look like? What did she feel like? Now you've got to connect that to Romans 5, 12 through 14. So here we go, Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, that's why you have circumcision, right? You got that? Hope you do, if you don't see me later. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him. Him being Jesus Christ, who was to come. Adam is incredibly honored in the New Testament. The highest honor a human being can be given. He's identified as a type of Jesus Christ. That's extraordinary. So all you have to do now is connect Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and the federal headship and typology of Adam back to the ubiquity of law, which is the end of chapter 3. See how easy that is? That's piece of pie, easy as cake. Well, maybe not. But if you're able to do it, you're going to clear the smoke fog, or what I like to call the the smoog, because if you have two O's back to back, one of them, whoops, couldn't spell. One of them has to be uh, has to be the long, so the smoog. I'm probably the only one that says smoog, but I never really did like smog. I saw an O in smoke and an O in fog. I thought it made sense to be smoog. I don't know why it's smog. So I'm, I am now entering and submitting my smoog. And if we all say it every day, wow, look at all the smoog. Eventually what will happen? We will overcome them because we have it on, we have, we have two O's in this. Right? I'll win. You can help me. I wouldn't live in Los Angeles. Why not? All the crime and the smoog. I wouldn't do it. Too much smoog. Couldn't deal with all that smoog. Trust me. We can do it. Or not. But if it starts to happen, you'll think, wow, we are one, one very powerful group, won't we? Thank you. goes all over the Internet. Somebody said, Steve knows he's being recorded. Yes, I do. I know it. Anyway, Werner, back to the pile of Scripture that I itemized, enumerated for you and all the others with regard to this question. Uh, this is Werner from Switzerland's question, if you remember, about the mystery of God's sovereign omniscience. Did you think I was going to make all those connections for Adam's typology and the ubiquity of law and Abraham and Sarah being returned? Did you think I was going to do that? Well, you'd be wrong again. You have to do that yourself. You can do it. Start thinking about it. How does the typology of Adam fit in his federal headship, which caused all to have sin, fit with Abraham and Sarah being returned and Isaac and circumcision, and then back to the universalism of law. That's what Paul did. He put those together. They connect. And you need to approach Scripture that way. Okay. Back to Werner from Switzerland. His question about the mystery of God's sovereign omniscience and the free will of angelic beings and mankind. Notice two things. One, we are now committed uh, to identifying the Internet folks by name and location. I have Werner from Switzerland, we have Sharon from Texas, Jennifer from Arizona, Stephen from Seattle, Angela from Canada, and Benjamin, and I hope Laura from Chicago. Those are the people who have given me, and, um, and Genti, I can't remember where Genti is, who I have read their emails. Uh, there's a few more, and if I forgot you, I'm sorry, those are just the ones off the top of my head that I remembered. And so I thought that I would begin to tell them that they're identified not by who 
their name is exactly, but uh, what location they have. And I thought maybe we should get maps and pens and photographs and such. But uh, that's one thing. But notice also that the collision of God's omniscience and man's slash angel's free will seems to us as something that is what? Irreconcilable. The question becomes, how can God know everything and be outside of time, and yet we have free will to choose? And if we reject our garment of blood, we are then held accountable and cast into everlasting darkness. How can his omniscience and our freedom to choose coexist? How can both of them exist simultaneously? That's the question of Werner from Switzerland. That's the question of many people. And it's a great mystery. Last week I asked the question, uh, do you like the fact that some people have been preordained from the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, regardless of what they do and say or think to everlasting condemnation? I'll put it a better way. Do you like the fact, if you have the far view on this, do you like that this teaching... I shouldn't say fact, that was bad. Do you like this teaching? That children who die in the womb before they take a breath of air are condemned to everlasting lake of fire, darkness, and torment. You like that? There's some people that like that. I don't know what to say to them. I make fun of them. They don't like me making fun of them. I ask them what the what the daycare in the lake of fire system is like, since I have infant children there. Do they get toys to play in the fire with? Yes, ma'am, you can ask the question. Kathy in the front row, Sharon, as opposed to Kathy in the back row, who never raises her hand and is really quiet and polite. Kathy in the front row. Yes, Kathy in the front row. No, they would condemn those, by the way, very good question because I said it badly. They would condemn those who are not of believing parents. But then they would condemn some of those that are of believing parents. You can find somebody who will argue for that regardless. But certainly any child who is born before it takes its breath that is not of believing parents, pick your sect or religion, they are condemned by God. That's their view. That's what they teach. I can find it in a hundred churches, maybe in this city. It's called hyper-Calvinism. They believe that. Yes, sir. Oh, golly. That's a very good question. Because if they approached it right, they would have no reference. That's what I'm trying to say. You immediately, on, on just a gut instinct, know there's something wrong with that teaching, don't you? But you have to be able to answer why, and that's why I gave all those references, Genesis 2, 3, Genesis 15, Matthew 4, Matthew 26, Matthew 20, Matthew 20. You know, that's why. That's why there are Hebrew patrol ceremony, Jonas, or Judas, sorry. So Jonas. Is Jonas here today? Why did I put Jonas and Judas together? (laughs) Is it because I coached Jonas when he was 16? Yes, probably. Okay. How can this exist simultaneously? Let me repeat that question. (coughs) How can both of these things that seem to be irreconcilable, to be in a collision, to be opposites, how can they both exist simultaneously? What subject are we in now? What did I do to you? What did you say? No. Yes, we are. We are back in quantum theory. That's where we are. (laughs) Okay? It's a great mystery, and we should approach it a bunch of different ways. As Joel asked, where do I fight this in Scripture? What do I do? Where else does this incongruency exist in Scripture? Where I have a collision like this. And immediately, Genesis 15, uh, the smoking furnace and the lamp passing between the pieces and the two undivided birds. Why are the birds undivided? 
Use the same answer you had last time. Substance dualism. Thank you. Okay. Genesis 15, I have the smoking furnace. That's God's justice, his holiness, side by side, reconciled with the flaming torch, if you will. That is God's omnipotent love and mercy. So I have God's omnipotent, infinite holiness and justice reconciled with God's omnipotent love and mercy. Two un, two un, what's the word I want? You cannot, these forces cannot be overcome. And yet they are, they are in collision, it seems. But they're not, really, because the solution to this is who? Jesus Christ. He is the solution to sin. He is not just the invisible made visible. He is the impossible made possible. And that is the issue of Matthew 4. That is what Satan is doing in Matthew 4. He is asking Christ to solve sin and solve the omniscience of God and the justice of God versus the free will of angelic beings and humanity. And that's the issue <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> that's the issue of Matthew twenty six, thirty six through fifty two, which is Gethsemane, where Christ says, Not my will or not my cup let this cup pass, not my will, but your will. Satan in Matthew four is demanding that Jesus Christ answer and solve free will, sin, and God's condemnation of unbelieving or uncovered with blood sinners, those who reject the garment, and that dramatic theodicy of Gethsemane where the triune Godhead demonstrates Genesis 15, which is the smoking furnace and the bright flaming lamp. That's what's going on in Gethsemane. If you have any other view on Gethsemane, you in a wampum trouble. If you think Christ is afraid of his own crucifixion, is trying to get out of it, or any other such nonsense, then you violated rule one, which is Christ is always God, never not God. If you've got any position that says otherwise, you is, what's the word I want? Um, no, idiot is probably impolite, uh, uh, buried in muck. You should be calm and, and in a group and not give your opinion because it's an indefensible opinion. Okay? Will that, will that, will that offend people? Then I should apologize. <laughs> I'm sorry if I said something that offends you. That's my favorite apology. I see it all the time made by politicians and, and the like, mostly sports people that say something crazy. I'm sorry if there are some of you who are offended by that. And, and of course, you know that I'm not sorry at all. That is a fake sorry, hence the T-shirt. Okay. I repeat all that again because this design, is Im- this impossible made possible, is hidden where? It's hidden in the framework of the creation, his creation. God has placed within his created physical reality these seemingly irreconcilable, dualistic mysteries. Entanglement, superposition, wave-particle duality, complementarity, observer effect. The microscopic realm is filled with dualistic mystery. The Bible is filled in the same manner. And we should expect that. That's why we study, by the way, the microscopic realm. Because with very minimal effort, it becomes obvious that the design of the creation and the design of the Bible are identical. The creator and the author are the, are one and the same. Now, back to Genesis 2 and 3. See if you can do this. Adam and Eve. How many is that? Let me help you. Satan and Eve. Satan and Adam. How many trees I got? I got a tree of life. And a tree of surely die, which is death. Tree of life, tree of death. I have good and evil, life and death, figs and olives. You don't understand where I got figs and olives? See me later. Eventually, I've got the Garden of Gethsemane, 
and the Garden of Golgotha. All this, all this dualism. And if you are, if you are able to understand that neither Adam nor Eve, though in a fallen state, neither Adam or Eve in a fallen state, what subject am I attacking right now? Hyper-Calvinism. Adam and Eve in a fallen state, neither one of them took from the tree of life. They took from the tree of death, but they did not take from the tree of life. If you understand that, that they're in a fallen state, and they still don't take from the tree of life, and that God eventually has to drive them from the garden to protect them from that decision... Notice how I said that? What, is it your position that they didn't take from the tree of life because they couldn't find it? No, they stumbled around, couldn't find it. Where is that tree of life? Who would show them where it was? Satan would. And do you think that that happened? I have two of them poisoned, right? Taking from the tree of death. And Satan doesn't say, hey, right over there, boy and girl. I like to say moose and squirrel. But I can't say that. But right over there, boy and girl, is the tree of life. And if you take from the tree of life, you will not. You will live forever in sin just like me. And you can't trust God. You better take a run at that tree of life, baby. And they didn't do it. Neither one. Though they had the poison in them in a fallen state. And as I said, God drives them out to protect them. And he places the, his Shekinah glory and the cherubim, Genesis 3, through 24, making it clear that man needs a supernatural intervention while in sin to enable him from to, to keep from choosing to keep from going into a fallen state forever, Genesis 3.22. But the most important questions become, how did Adam, not deceived, 1 Timothy 2.14, and Eve, deceived, 1 Timothy 2.14, manage to not take from the second tree? What accounts for that? Okay, answer that. And then, when did Eve fall? When did Adam fall? How much time is involved here between the fall of each? Do not tell me that Adam is with Eve. It's an indefensible position. When did Jesus Christ, the physical manifestation of God, when did God Christ come to the garden? How long did God Christ wait before he came? They had time to do things. They had time to go to that tree and didn't. They had time to make fig leaf coverings. How long does it take to make a fig leaf covering? I know that many of you have heard this before, but I'm repeating it for our Internet folks and those who haven't heard it. Let me ask this. Is this once again on a Passover crucifixion week pattern? Is it, did Adam die slash fall, eat from the tree of death? Did he die slash fall at three o'clock? In the afternoon on Passover, did Christ come to the garden? Which feast day would he come? What feast day would Christ come? You can do this. Okay, pick a feast day. Which one's he going to come on? Which one is he going to be born on? Feast day of trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. In September, not Christmas. Sorry if you have a Christmas view. No, I'm not. Did that happen? I put those in, in question form. It is for you to figure out the timeline of this literally true actual event that is filled to the brim with dualistic mystery. And when you've established the timeline for the fall of Adam and you're ready now to go to the timeline of the fall of Satan and, and the first lie of Satan, which is by the abundance of your traffic, Ezekiel 28, 16. You know what the first lie is. What is the first lie? 
that God cannot solve omniscience and free will of man. And therefore is not good, is the author of sin, and cannot judge. That's the first lie of Satan. You'll work that out. I have that, by the way, on the Internet somewhere. I don't know where. It's not my job to know where. It's Ben's and Dave's and Kurt's job. Okay, but once you got those timelines, now you put the two timelines in the correct sequence. Let me help you with this. Who fell first, Adam or Satan? Satan did. How long before Adam did he fall? How, did he, how about all the angelic hosts? Did they fall before Satan or after? I'm sorry, fall before Adam or after Adam? Okay, this is a conversation Boris and I had uh, all the way back from his lot being excavated. Hey, but you have to have those two timelines. You asked me what you thought was a simple question. What was your question, by the way? You remember? And I went for four hours and 21 minutes, didn't I? Yeah, oh yeah. We're, we're, I, I, you have two Edens. You have the Ezekiel 28 Eden, and you have the uh, Genesis 2 and 3 Eden. Are they the same Eden? Anyway, once you get those timelines together in their correct sequence with respect to each other, now you can move on to the implications of Genesis 15, Matthew 4, Matthew 26, 36 through 52, as you solve God's outside of time omniscience and man slash angels free will. And again, that's a piece of pie, easy as cake. Okay, not really. It's not. But that's how you approach it. I want to take a little time today to get you doing that in Romans. Now, our finally, Cliffside's favorite word, finally, maybe buffet. Uh, you're only 15 minutes from the buffet when I say finally. Unless uh, we're going to conclude uh, today, and I know you all like conclude, uh, with a little more interferometer physics or quantum theory. Okay. Well, let's see where, I get, where I'm at here. I skip a little bit. When we last left off, we had begun to study the simple version. This is a simple version of a Mach Zinder interferometer. They have a more complex version. They put a variable mirror in. Okay? Oh, no, it's a trick. It's a trick. She has a phone call. Or me. Oh, it is Lori. You made her call me. Yes, you did. You, you, yes, it's a trick and she's lying. It is a trick. Huh? Where are you at? They all, they all, I just was making fun of that, and so I know the, the, the it just can't possibly be coincidental. I'm suspicious. <laughs> yes, I, I just was, I was, I, I, let me talk. <laughs> I just finished telling them that I never get a real phone call. And I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I, I don't think they're going to consider you a real phone call. They're not. They're not. They want to know if you're in town and do you have any pizza for the buffet. That's what everybody wants to know. You're having corn on a cob? Okay, well, I, I, I wrote, I just finished saying the word finally, and we will conclude with a little more interferometer physics and quantum theory when you call and so they're so they're hoping that I will conclude here. Yeah, okay, I love you, honey. Boy. <laughs> that was not fair. Okay, where are we? When we last left off, we'd begun to to deal with a simple version of the Mach Zender interferometer. And and it's half silvered and full silvered mirrors and beam of light split into two paths and the resulting constructive and destructive interference. How many twos did you notice there? Okay. How many paths do you see in the Mach Zender interferometer? I have an upper path and a lower path. I have this dualism in everything eventually. 
And so I, I have superposition of a single photon traveling through the interferometer unless it's measured or observed. And then the wave function of the photon collapses back into a particle function. Do you remember all of that? And everyone in the class, without exception, completely understood the principles of an interferometer, right? You all got it. And they're confident and you're going to do really good on the essay exam next week, which is filled with story problems. Well, I'll help you out a little bit today on the odd chance that maybe one or two of you is slightly confused in some little tiny aspect of interferometry. Yes, there is such a thing as the study of interferometers, and they call it interferometry. Say that a lot to your kids. Okay? Interferometry. The study of interferometers. And yes, uh, some of you asked me last week, is Ludwig Mach of the Mach-Zender interferometer, um, he is the guy for whom the measurement of the speed of sound uh, is there, Mach 1 or Mach 2 or whatever, right? That's him. And Ludwig Zender, so I have Ludwig Mach and Ludwig Zender, that was his co-inventor, and it didn't surprise me when I, when I discovered that many years ago, that two guys named Ludwig became physicists and collaborated on dualism and made perfect sense. Anyway, let's establish some basic information before we try next week to understand what happens when a single photon enters into an interferometer. Because last week, Misty and Bonnie came up and began to get this, and so I got all excited. I want to make sure that the rest of you know to ask Misty and Bonnie how this thing works. Okay, anyway. First, we're going to go with complementarity. I won't write it on the board because Lori's phone call uh, took four minutes away from my time. But uh, the complementarity principle, that states that all... You'll hear some people say some, but all or some, whichever you want. All or some objects have multiple properties that appear to be contradictory at the microscopic level. Do you see how this fits in now? All objects have multiple properties that appear to be contradictory. And sometimes it is possible to switch back and forth between different views of an object and observe these properties. In other words, I can set up my interferometer and I can see a particle property by measuring it. As soon as I measure something, my wave function collapses into a particle. So I can prove, for example, that that photon is a particle. But I can also prove diffraction with that particle and that it is a wave with the same interferometer. I can choose which experiment I want to do. But I can't do both experiments at the same time. Does that make sense? So I can go back and forth with different views of an object to observe two properties, but it is thought to be impossible to observe both properties at the same time. Does that make sense? Inside of time. It is impossible to see both properties at the same time inside of time despite their coexistence in physical reality. Does that make sense? And does it remind you of anything? I see something. I see two things uh, that is one thing, but I can't see both of them at the same time. I can see this one sometimes, and I can see that one sometimes, but I can never see both at the same time because they can't seemingly coexist at the same time, but they do exist at the same time inside of time. That makes sense. Notice how I keep saying that. Anyway, that is in essence Neil Bohr's complementarity principle. Do I need to reread it? I have four minutes. Let me try it. Complementarity principle. Objects have multiple properties that appear to be contradictory. They have two properties that appear to be contradictory. Sometimes it is possible to switch back and forth between different views of an object to observe one of those properties. But you cannot see both properties at the same time. 
Despite their coexistence, you can't observe them both at the same time. That's, again, the complementarity principle. In other words, an electron or a neutron or a photon, let me just take an electron, okay, a photon, since we're talking about photons. A photon is both a particle and a wave. That seems to be impossible, because normally being a particle and being a wave are mutually exclusive. But nonetheless, a photon is a wave and a particle at the exact same time. And I can view it as a particle, and I can view it as a wave, but I cannot view it as both a particle and a wave at the same time. And then how it manifests itself in the physical world when it's observed. Is it a wave when it's observed, or is it a particle when it's observed? Is it a wave function, a particle function? Okay, so far so good? Maybe kind of, sort of. Get me after. Down to three minutes, 16, 15, 14 seconds. A half-silvered mirror is a crummy mirror. Does that make sense? Okay, think of it as one-way glass. It's a crummy mirror. When, when light is incident on a crummy mirror, a half-silvered mirror, what does that mean? Light is incident on the mirror. Yeah, that's just a fancy way of saying light is striking the mirror. Half of the light is reflected off of the crummy mirror. So if I have a half-silvered mirror, there's my half-silvered mirror, okay? My crummy mirror, my one-way glass, the people in here can see you looking at yourself, and they laugh at us. But we still do it. When light hits my half-silvered mirror, it is reflected. Half of it is reflected. Boom goes the light, and half of it is reflect, re, refracted through it. Okay, reflected. I can't say it now this late in the sermon. Reflected. You know what reflection is, right? Reflected and refracted. Whoops. So half goes, is reflected. You see yourself. Half is reflected through it. Does that make sense? That is on a crummy mirror. Here's where it gets a little difficult. The speed of light through air is almost the same as the speed of light through a vacuum. Remember the formula, right? The equivalency of energy equals mass times the speed of light through a vacuum squared. Remember that? C is the speed of light. There's my thingy. The speed of light through air is very close to the speed of light through a vacuum. But the speed of light through glass is not anywhere near the speed of light through a vacuum or through air, it's about two-thirds. And on the order of two-thirds. So, this is where it gets tough. The speed of light, when a ray, I'm sorry, when a ray of light, a beam of light, is incident on a surface, it hits the surface, the material on the other side of where it hits has an impact. Okay? So let's try to explain that. The light is hitting the crummy mirror, the half-silvered mirror. What's on the other side of the half-silvered mirror? Glass. Very good. I have glass on the other side. Okay? So it's coming through air. How fast is it going to go? Much faster than when it goes through the glass. So when the material on the other side has a higher index of refraction, okay, in other words... It goes slower. Light, light travels through it slower. Then the reflected light, this is the refracted light, this is the reflected light. When I hit, have something, when I'm coming through air and I hit glass, when I have a higher index of refraction, then the reflected is shifted one half of a lambda or one half of a wavelength. Does that make sense? Okay, and I'll quit with this because my time's up. Okay, so here I come. I'm coming through. I hit this half-silvered mirror, and it is reflected, and I'm in air, 
and now I'm going to be reflect, refracted through glass. That means this shifts a half a wavelength. That makes sense to you. Okay, then it comes up here. Comes up here, it hits a good mirror, and it's in air. Okay, and we call this infinite. Uh, we call mirrors infinite. In other words, none of the light goes through it. So that means that it is infinite refraction, which is a lot, a lot more refraction, refraction than air. So it shifts again a half a wavelength. So I have a half wavelength shift and another half wavelength shift. I'm shifting that light in phase, which is the same thing as changing its polarity, if you want to think of it that way. Now, if it comes through here, okay, and it hits that half-silvered mirror, what's on the other side of that half-silvered mirror? Because it doesn't reflect through the glass, does it? Passes through, no reflection. Okay, it hits a half-silvered mirror. It came through air, right? It hit the half-silvered mirror and reflected. And then what's on the other side of the half-silvered mirror? Air. Same as what I traveled through to get it, right? Air equals air, and I have no reflect refraction. No, I'm sorry, no phase shift. Does that make sense? Okay. The material on the other side is, uh, if it is the same, what they'll call the medium. Boy, I'm, now I'm losing this completely, aren't I, Terry? I'm completely off of it. You guys want to keep going, so we will. Sorry about the Internet, folks. But here's the value of coming to church. You get the buffet, and you get to see how this works. I have air. I hit glass. A mirror. Okay? On the other side of the mirror is glass. So, I came through air with my light, and I went, I reflected off of the half-silvered mirror. Half of the beam did. <laughs> and then the other half, now I'm being targeted. Now, the other half of the beam goes that way, but it went through glass. And so, when it goes through a medium that is slower for light to travel through, then I get a half-wavelength, what's called a lambda, quit tormenting the people, a half-lambda phase shift, or wavelength phase shift. Think of that as changing it to a negative, if you will, or some kind of different polarity. Okay. Then when it came up here, it hit that mirror, and that mirror has an infinite... Um, light can't pass through it. So, here, light is going through air. Here, light can't go through that. So, when it hits that, what is the medium on the other side with respect to the medium here? It's infinitely bigger. In other words, it's, it stops light to, a, to nothing. There is no... It can't travel through it. So, that means the medium on the other side of a full mirrored glass is impossible for light to travel through. There is no speed of light going through it called infinite reflection. Okay? So that means I have air and I have infinity and that means I get a phase shift. Does that make sense? Because the medium on the other side of the mirror right here, it is infinite. So light can't... Who's doing that to me? Okay, Pat, stop there's only three or four suspects. I went right to you on the second guess. Okay. Now, I shift again, so I have two phase shifts. So what does the light look like? We'll get to that next week. Now the light is going along, and it goes through the glass, where it's, if you wish, it, you, you could say that it slows down. It deflects slightly, but not much. But because I have air, when it, after it hits the surface, and it does deflect, in fact, it deflects up as well. Um, how do I do that? There we go. It, yes. So the speed, very good, very good. The speed of the light after it hits the silvered mirror is the same as the speed of the light before it hits the, the silvered mirror, and therefore it has no phase shift on the reflection. Does that make sense? So now you can take it through. Here, I hit here and I reflect. What do I have? 
I have aphasia. Okay? I come up here, I hit this. What do I have? I have aphasia. Okay? Now, next week, we'll try to deal with what all that means. Okay? Let's rise and be dismissed.